If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of True Crime Podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. New episodes of Proof covering the case of Lee Clark and Kane Story are released every Monday. But on Thursdays, you'll see mini episodes like this one, where we answer listener questions, talk about things going on behind the scenes, as well as other true crime topics. I'm here this week with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick. So this week, we finally heard from Kane's story. He called us a few months back. He was moved to a new prison and had phone privileges restored and finally got in touch with me. He had written before. I knew from his mother that he had wanted to talk to me, but it didn't work out until many, many months after we started. Um, and it was a big moment to finally speak to him and hear his story. Uh, I think it's really compelling because you you hear from the one person who's in the room. And I think that it will provide us a lot of insight over the, the course of this season, having that perspective, because he's the only one who really knows what happened. That's one of the first things he said to me. It was like, I am the only one who knows. I told him that I had talked to Lee extensively and had lots of questions for him. And his reaction was, well, Lee doesn't know what happened there because he wasn't around. I'm the one that was there. I think it's really fascinating how you you both included in the story this week how Lee has struggled with Kane knowing and him not, because how can you ever be completely certain that someone's telling you the truth? Thought that came across very well in the last episode. That's a battle for him. Lee says he's certain now. He doesn't have doubts anymore, but it was right. a long time to get there. Well, we also heard this week about the informants that investigators spoke to. And we even heard from one, we heard from the single informant, our single witness whose interview still remains in the Floyd County Police Files today. Our best guess is that's because this informant turned up rather late. And I think what happened is that the investigator simply didn't bother to hand this tape over to the DA's office, which is why we were able to hear it. We also, what I thought was just as interesting as hearing from that informant was we hear Dallas Battle's voice for the very first time. Just like Kane, it's the first time, you know, we're hearing both their voices and Kane mimics Dallas Battle in a couple clips that we played. And it made me laugh because he sounds just like Dallas Battle when he mimics his voice. That one line where he says, you'll come out smelling like a rose, Kane. Um, now that I've heard Dallas Battle's voice, I can absolutely picture him, hear him say that. Um, we also heard about 
uh, Danny, the informant who did testify briefly at trial, the only informant that the jury heard from, and what he told Jacinda and I about how his statement came to be and what was going on at Floyd County Jail. In the show, we mentioned that the judge ultimately said he had to stop testifying, but we didn't really explain why and what law he cited. So the issue has to do with the fact that Kane and Lee are co-defendants and statements made by one are only admissible against the other in certain circumstances. Basically, you can use statements from co-defendants when they're part of the conspiracy, but once the conspiracy is over, you cannot admit the statements for evidence against the other co-defendant without violating confrontation clause um, prohibitions. So without getting into detail there, what happened is the informant, Danny, started testifying. And I think what he was supposed to do was to give a statement about how Kane and Lee had been together and made a confession to him, but he kind of veered off from that and instead talked about how they serially confessed, like first one, then the other, but while they were not in one of those presents. And because of that, it was no longer admissible and the judge had to stop it and ultimately didn't let it come in. We also, so at the trial, there were actually two informants that took the stand. Um, the one, Dan, like we said, the jury heard a little bit. The second informant, the jury did not hear at all because the judge had him questioned outside of the jury's presence and then decided he couldn't come in. Um, this informant was slightly different from the others because when Jacinda and I went to talk to him, I think we both thought it would be another one like Danny and the other informants that he says were recruited alongside him. But when we talked went to Larry, this informant, um, it seemed to be a different situation in part because Battle was not the one who found him. It was actually, he told us, and this was confirmed by Brian's family, it was Brian's grandmother who worked at the cafeteria at another facility who found this inmate and put him in touch with investigators. So unlike the other informants, he was not recruited by Dallas Battle. Um, what seems to have happened is the grandmother, she was at a, I forget which jail it was. I think it was Polk County somewhere. She worked in the cafeteria there and one of the inmates or detainees uh, was in the cafeteria and heard her talking about this case. And he said, oh, I was just in jail with Kane Story. Um, he made a statement you want to hear about. And that's how he ended up getting in touch with investigators and becoming a jail's informant. Although it should be noted that there is no evidence that actually any of the informants in this case, minus one, which we'll talk about later, were ever in a jail or the same block as either Kane or Lee. So calling them informants, quote unquote, is possibly generous when it is, it seems very likely that most, if not all of them, never even spoke to Lee or Kane. Like Danny, Larry also told us that, that there was no confession. He seemed not to remember that he'd ever claimed there'd been a confession and instead said that Kane had just seemed guilty when he told him about how his friend had died playing Russian roulette. Yeah, I think he said it was just an impression he got. Yeah, an impression. And he seemed really remorseful. He seemed kind of shaken up when he told them that there were not just one boy, but two boys in prison with life sentences because of this case. And he kept insisting, well, I didn't testify. I, I didn't testify, which he didn't. The jury didn't hear from him. He did not influence the verdict, but... They were certainly trying to recruit these informants with the idea that they would be allowed to testify. Mm -hmm. The question is, what was in it for them, if, if anything? You help me, we'll help you. So in the case of Danny, he said there was a sentence reduction. That's hard to confirm because we don't know what would have happened if he didn't cooperate. I can at least confirm that he had more charges and only ended up pleading out to one of them, but there's 
without more records, there's no way to say if that was in fact the product of a deal or just how things shook out. We also heard more this week from Caprice, the 15-year-old girlfriend of Brian. And one thing that struck me about this case is that you have the way Caprice talks and even Brian's family talk about Caprice and Brian's relationship. And then you have the state's theory. So you've got Caprice and Brian having this really puppy love, really sort of innocent, like let's meet at the Coke machines at school kind of deal. And then you have the state saying that actually she was part of a gang conspiracy to murder her boyfriend. And the two images to me just don't reconcile very well at all. Yeah, and Caprice is so important to this case because she says she heard Brian say they were playing Russian roulette. And if she did, in fact, hear Brian say that, it would confirm Kane's story that they were playing Russian roulette. So the detectives have to figure out a way to say that she's lying and part of the conspiracy and that what she said she heard is part of the conspiracy. When you both started telling me about this story, and Caprice came up and heard that she was an unindicted co-conspirator. I was like, oh, I could see a scenario by which they're creating this whole concept. They don't have to charge her because they don't feel like they have enough evidence and they need her in order to place a conspiracy together. I guess what stunned me is many people actually believe that. And I was surprised, particularly Amanda and Kenneth, being so convinced that that was actually what happened. And so I'm just curious to see how some of the listeners come away with that because I was surprised that so many people found it to be plausible. Now, keep in mind, the only evidence at trial that Caprice was part of a conspiracy was from Angela Bruce, who had the party a few months after Brian's death, where she says Lee and Kane showed up and confessed to murder. And then in a later statement says, oh yeah, Caprice was also there. But in her statement, Angela says that Caprice is blonde. She's a blonde girl that shows up on her doorstep and says, hey, are Lee and Kane here? They need to come with me. Um, and we tell this to Caprice and her reaction was, she started laughing. She's like, I am, I was not blonde. You can ask Brian's mother. Actually, we did talk to some Brian's family and they recalled her having dark hair. So that part was true. We did have a listener who lives in Rome, send us a picture of Caprice with blonde hair from Facebook. It's a picture that was taken much, much later than when this case took place. Yeah, and for uh, brevity, we, for brevity, we did not include it on the show, but we did go through uh, Caprice's hair history, and here's what she told us about her, um, her lifetime experiences of being blonde. In my license, when I was in hair school in 2015, now well, I don't think <laughs> that was not 1997. 2015, I had my hair cut short, and it was canary yellow. That's as blonde as I've ever got. I don't think the future. And it wasn't there for that long because I was like, ugh. So yeah, point being that Caprice was not blonde when she was 15. Uh, she could she not had, drive. She couldn't drive either. She had very dark hair. She just doesn't match what Angela Bruce describes about a blonde girl coming to the door. But I guess, you know, if the detectives are starting to put together this case of a conspiracy, you can see why people would jump to the conclusion that Caprice has to be involved. And again, we talked about confirmation bias earlier. You're now looking at the facts of the case through that bias that, oh, she had to be involved. And I kind of wonder why they ultimately decided to go with this theory as opposed to the Freebirds theory, um, other than I guess they ended up having more witnesses uh, or any witnesses to talk about 
like for instance, the rule book that Debbie Kelly says she saw in, in Kane's house, as opposed to this, these Caprice rumors, which don't have any witnesses really. They're just things a few people heard distantly. I think if you can, if you can cast some malicious intent as to why she's on the phone, you can get someone's imagination to get sort of carried away with that fact, shall we say? I mean, one thing I thought was interesting, you know, we hear Kane's side of the story for the first time, and it's pretty much what we had expected from police reports and whatnot. But um, we we also got messages from Brian's family this week saying they just don't see how there could have been enough time for that to happen between the time when Kane walks in and they hear the gunshot. They don't think there was enough time for him to go in and for them to play a couple rounds of Russian roulette and then for the gun to go off. They feel very, very strongly that there just wasn't enough time. We don't have any exact timelines here. Um, the one thing we do know for just about certain is that the phone call, 911 call was made by Brian's, Brian's family at 937, at least according to the old uh, fire department records when they got the call for the EMT to, to be dispatched there. So 937 is after the shots been fired. We know Brian would have gotten home around nine, maybe a little bit after nine, and that Kane got there not too long after that. But the family recalls it being a very, very brief amount of time between when Kane slash Josh walks back to Brian's bedroom and when they hear the thud. They say like three to five minutes in some of the trial testimony. And both Caprice and Kane describe events as not taking very long at all. They don't put an exact number of minutes on it. So it's clear it's not a long period of time here, but the question is, is it long enough for two boys to have started playing with a gun? Right. And also, but the, the flip side of that is, is it long enough for the plan to unfold of, okay, distract Brian. Once he's distracted, Caprice, I guess, is supposed to have be, sent a pager message to Lee who is hiding somewhere and then comes to the window and all of that would take time too. So if there's not time for them to play Russian roulette, in my mind, there's not time for this alleged plan to unfold either. Unless the beeping thing was a plan to get both Lee and Kane over there. The beeper thing comes from Angela Bruce. So let's put a big old asterisk next to that story. But according to this beeper theory, that's, I guess what could have been happening. Right, because someone would have had to signal to Lee that he's there and he's distracted, so go ahead and come to the window. Yeah. Why, why would they have to distract him is one thing that I never understood. If they were going to shoot him, why wouldn't they just shoot him? Well, that's the other thing. Um, we had a listener write in a question about doesn't understand, one, why they would have to, to try to muffle the shot or distract him. If the theory is that if, if the plan is that they're going to say we're playing Russian roulette, you wouldn't have to hide the gunshot, the sound of the gunshot, because you're going to say it's Russian roulette. That's um, the, the, another part that doesn't quite add up with this theory of the, what the plan was here for me is that the idea is they muffled a shot so they, the gunshot wouldn't be heard. But if the plan's to make it be a fake Russian roulette, you want it to be heard. If no one hears the shot, then that's going to undermine this. It was Russian roulette story. Exactly. Hey everyone, before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? If you're dying to know, then what was that like is the podcast for you. 
What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the price is right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. (laughs) So if you want to hear some disturbing, inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like? Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we also got a question from Wee Wee Johns. Uh, is a DA not bound by the same rules as someone on the stand? Y'all keep saying the pillow is the key, but to me, if Brian was never arrested or charged in connection with stealing the safe, there would never have been motive to kill in the first place. Um, I guess the question is, how can the DH make up lies, support the case, and not himself be in trouble? And did Lee and Kane's attorneys not try to check into the lies that the DA was feeding to the jury? Um, I do think the word lies is too strong here. We don't have any reason to believe that the prosecutor knew he was making false statements during opening statements, especially when they're such obviously fact-checked and should have been easily corrected statements. To me, the sense I get is that the DA simply didn't know his case that well. Um, There were a number of troubling misstatements that he made, but I am willing to believe that he simply either got bad info from his investigators or made mistaken assumptions about stuff that he never checked, um, as opposed to actually lying. That said, it's still very concerning, and I find it very troubling that he made a number of factual misrepresentations to the jury about very critical issues. And then the second part of that question about Lee and Kane's attorneys, couldn't they have objected or, or done something to point out the mistakes the DA was making? Yes, they could have. Um, there are sort of tactical considerations there as well. You don't want to be objecting all through the other side's opening or closing. And that can make the jury sort of hostile towards you or to be suspicious. It's not always a good idea to, it's definitely not a good idea to object to every little sort of misstatement. At the same time, a number of the things the prosecutor said should have been very quickly corrected, um, especially things like Brian being charged for the safe theft when he had nothing to do with it. Are we sure that their lawyers knew that they were incorrect statements? That's another part of it. Uh, We don't know at all. It's possible that just like the prosecutor, the defense attorneys didn't know the facts well enough to realize that there was a number of misstatements being made. 
because I mean, as an attorney, that statement has to stand out. I mean, you have to either know that it's that it's true or false. If it's false, you should be jumping out of your chair. And if it's true, you should be, oh my God, that just established motive for my clients. It seems extraordinary not to to know one way or the other. But um, and our last question comes from Jeff, who says, So did Angela's story go from getting tired of all the murder talk to so she pulled a knife on them and made them leave? to saying that the victim's girlfriend was involved and just randomly pulled up at my house and picked them up? Or did she take it a step further and claim the victim's girlfriend pulled up and then she pulled a knife on him? This is talking about Angela's stories about how the party ended. She has a, several changes very quick in time. The interviews she gave to um, Dallas Battle and David Stewart are recorded are very short. They're like six minutes or eight minutes. They're not long interviews. Um, and yet in the space of like a couple minutes in her first interview, she goes from saying that Kane was at the party for like four hours and then left when the party ended to saying that when Kane and Lee confessed, she pulled a knife on them and forced them out of her house because she didn't like their crazy murder talk. Then the next interview, she says that Kane and Lee leave when um, Caprice and another blonde girl that she doesn't know pull up and come to the door and say, are Kane and Lee here? And I guess someone's like, yeah, they're here. And they just waltz out the door in this version of angela's story there's no knife involved there's no no kind of violence that's been totally forgotten you know a lot of people have written in asking questions about angela bruce and her story and and how and why it changes we couldn't talk to angela at first because she she doesn't live in rome georgia anymore but susan and i did make a separate trip and we were able to talk to angela on the record so we'll be including her side of the story um, in future episodes. So stay tuned for that. We also have some exciting news for one of the rare times in Floyd County. We had success in getting documents. One of the things we really wanted to hear are the two cassette tapes that were exhibits at Lee and Kane's trial. Um, both of them are recorded interviews with Kane's story, one about the safe theft and one about Brian's death. We requested them from the court. Initially, we were not given them. So we filed a motion with the court asking for access to those tapes and we won. The judge agreed that those tapes should have been available to us and we were able to get copies of both. Um, and that's something you'll be hearing from in later episodes. We also got a ruling that the closing arguments and opening statements in this case, which were not transcribed, should be made available to us. In Georgia, the tape recordings of court proceedings like trials are not themselves considered court records. So we could not get access to that. But in this case, like in a lot of cases, not all of the trial proceedings were actually put into transcript form. So the only record that exists is in the, the uh, tape cassettes of the recordings that were made. So the judge also ruled that we are either entitled to those tape recordings or to transcripts being made of the opening and closings or any other parts that weren't transcribed. So hopefully within a reasonable amount of time, we'll also be able to see what was said in closing arguments at trial. One of these tapes that you won the court order for is the original interview between Kane Story and Dallas Battle, yeah? It is. It's the confession tape. I mean, I mean that is going to be so interesting when everyone actually gets to hear that. You're going to hear him and Kane and Dallas in a room. And also Mark Wallace, the current chief of the Floyd County Police Department. That's going to be fascinating to, to understand what Kane said, how he said it what Dallas said, how he said it. You know, we spoke to June's story on the first trip to Rome and the way she described what happened after that sort of interrogation. And that was the turning point in this whole story. 
Well, that's all for this week's sidebar. Don't forget to tune in on Monday for episode six, where we'll discuss the forensics in this case, such as they are. Thanks for listening to this sidebar episode. We're back Monday with episode six, and if you have any questions for future sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we're Proof Crime Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at the View from LL2 and on Instagram at Sue Simp. That's S O O S I M P. 